Welcome to the GRF On The Go podcast. The subject matter experts at GRF CPAs and Advisors created this podcast to offer insights on current topics, as well as new ideas and best practices that your team can apply today. This podcast was originally presented as a live webinar. CPE information provided during the podcast is no longer valid, but if you're interested in watching the video version of this session or accessing the slide deck, visit our website at grfcpa.com forward slash events. Enjoy the episode and remember to subscribe for future content. Hello, I want to welcome everyone participating in today's webinar, exploring the FASB's update for nonprofits and private companies. My name is Sarah Glenn and I'm the audit manager here at GRF CPAs and Advisors and I will be today's session moderator. I would now like to introduce our today's speakers. Trisha Katabini is an audit partner with the firm. She's a member of the GWS CPA, the ASAE, and Laurel's Advocacy and Referral Services. Trisha also serves on the AICPA's Joint Trial Board and was recognized with the 2021 MACPA Woman to Watch Award. Andra Jensen is a senior manager with the firm. She is also a member of the GWS CPA, the AICPA, and a founding member of the GRS DEI Initiative. This year, Alejandra is nominated for the 2022 MACPA Women to Watch Award. Together, they have almost 30 years of experience in the accounting field. I'll now turn the presentation over to our speakers. Thanks, Sarah. Ooh, and 30 years of experience. You're making me feel a little old here. <laughs> Well, welcome everybody. Um, first of all, thank you for your time and being here. We know that time is valuable, but we do think that some of these items that we're going to be covering and discussing in today's webinar are really important for our not-for-profits as well as our non-public entities. So what we're going to be talking through today um, is just a couple of quick things. Number one, leases. Now I know that this is something that has been talked about for a number of years, the first ASU or accounting standard update came out in 2016. Um, so it has been around for a while now. We've been looking at this for a couple of years. We've had several clients who have early adopted, but it is still something that we've seen a lot of our clients either struggling with or honestly still not aware that they even need to take a look at it. So we found it to be valuable to include in today's webinar again today. The, um, the second item that we'll be talking about will be related to contributions of non-financial assets. And so Alejandra will discuss what those are specifically and what is going to be included in this ASU in terms of the changes with this amendment. And last but not least, we'll also be giving an update on an ASU that came out last year uh, related to Goodwill. That one's a little bit shorter, should be easier to get through, um, so stay tuned. So obviously leases, again, something that has been very top of mind uh, for our clients. And just to give you a little bit of a background about GRF, we do service nearly 800 not-for-profits on an annual basis at this point in time. We also have a small government contracting for-profit audit practice as well in our department. And so with that, we are seeing a plethora of clients that are um, looking to early adopt the standard, who have been you know, asking us a lot of questions regarding how the leases apply to them. We have clients that are not only here within the United States, um, but we also have a lot of 
international nonprofit global organizations that are being faced with this challenging standard because they're now looking at say 25 leases across the entire world globally and are having to consolidate those back into um, US GAAP or generally accepted accounting principles for this. So we just wanted to kind of um, be able to pull the room a little bit with our first question. And so I'll turn that over to Sarah. So we've come to our first polling question. Have you started the implementation calculation yet for your organization's leases? A, yes, we early adopted. B, no, we're adopting at the required date. C, not yet. D, unsure. Please take a moment now to answer. While participants are submitting their answers, I'll provide the first CPE word. The first CPE word is update. If you wanna receive your CPE credit, please jot these words down because you will need them for the survey following the webinar. Again, the first CPE word is update, U-P-D-A-T-E. So we have our results and it looks like almost half of you who are on today's presentation haven't yet started the calculation for it. So. In terms of the lease standard, I think this is gonna be a, a good one to kind of roll through with a, our presentation today. So let's get started. Um, first and foremost, we really wanted to just explain to you why, because I think that's probably the biggest question that a lot of our clients are asking, well, why? Why does this make sense? Why did the Financial Accounting Standards Board come out with this standard for us as non-public companies? Um, so really, if you look at it, leases are utilized by nearly almost all um, clients and organizations across the board. Now, that's shifted ever so slightly with COVID, obviously. Uh, many, um, some of our clients, I should say, not many, but some of our clients have opted to be a fully virtual shop now. Um, so that liability is going away. But again, I mentioned the word liability because when you do think through a lease, it is non-cancelable leases when you look at space at least. So if we think about it in those terms, you do have an obligation as an organization to have to pay on future payments for that right to use of an asset, right? And so really looking at the transparency that is required um, and looking at the comparability of organizations, FASB really thought it was really important to have the lease assets as well as the lease liabilities on the statement of financial position or the balance sheet, depending on the type of organization that you are. And again, really disclosing those key um, items within the footnotes, which we, a lot of organizations clearly obviously do. Um, but again, there's been some criticism that has arisen regarding this lease standard. Uh, we, we hear it all the time that you know it doesn't make sense. Our readers and our users of our financial statements don't really care necessarily about the lease. Um, so with that, you know, we were looking at under 840, which was the prior lease standard, 842 is the new one. A lot of the footnotes were included about the leases and the commitments. We did look at disclosures for the future minimum lease payments that were required. But again, there's nothing on the main face of the statement that actually kind of lays out the details of what's required by the organization. And so a lot of financial statements, yes, uh, why we don't like to say this, it does happen. A lot of users of financial statements will kind of look through the numbers, but they won't necessarily look through the detailed information in the footnotes um, for anything that's kind of sticking out. 
So again, this is kind of why 842 has come about. Um, it does have a heavier impact on less ease versus the less sores. So the less sore accounting hasn't really changed a lot. There's not a lot of fundamental updates uh, required under 842. If you do lease out space as either um, a lessor, maybe you have a sublease, a lot of that has not changed. But if you are a lessee, we're going to be looking at this a little bit more closely. So again, I used the words and the terms earlier, right of use asset, um, and then obviously a lease liability. So those are the main changes here. It's going to have a growth up on your balance sheet. You're going to have a new asset that is uh, basically outlining what the present value amortized, unamortized portion of the space that you have available to you or the asset that you are using. Um, if it's a financing lease, and then you will have a corresponding lease liability that will then again continue to be reduced as you move through the years within your lease. So again, this really does apply to all entities, whether you're a nonprofit, whether you are a for-profit, whether you're a public or a non-public entity, implementation dates uh, shifted just a little bit. But again, if we're looking at calendar year ends, the effective date is as of right now. Um, so if you're a calendar year end, you are required to be adopting this new accounting standard update effective January 1 of 2022. If you are a fiscal year end, you're now looking at whatever your start of your fiscal year is in 2022. So for instance, if you're a 6-30-2022 year end, 6-30 year end, it would be applicable for your FY23 uh, fiscal year. So you would be adopting it as of 7-1-2022. So just looking at a few things that it does not apply to that the actual codification has come out and said, one, leases of intangible assets is not a requirement for this standard update. Number two, if you have any type of use when it comes to things such as minerals, oils, those types of resources, biological assets, inventory, or assets that are currently under construction, this lease standard specifically excludes those types of um, leases. The implementation method. So you do have a couple of different options under here, under the new uh, standard for how you are going to implement the actual um, transition. So either A, it's going to be the date that you are required to actually implement it. So again, calendar year ends, it would be required to be implemented January 1 of 2022. Or if you have a comparative financial statement, you can actually show it as of the beginning of the earliest comparative period that you presented. So again, if you are implementing as of the required date, your calendar year 2022 year end, you would be looking at implementing it as of 1-1-2021 if you have comparative financial statements. Again, we have been really emphasizing and encouraging our clients to look at it as of the required implementation date. It just makes things a lot smoother, a lot easier. You don't have to go back and do a recalculation. Um, the other things is you do can have an accounting policy out there that basically says that you can elect not to apply those recognition requirements on the short-term leases that are less than 12 months, uh, which is really great because it makes things a lot easier, a lot less work for clients. Um, you can just recognize those on a straight line basis, much like you would under the old standard. So saving time and effort on those uh, is, a, is a great um, thing. We've looked at a lot of clients that are um, looking at um, their current leases that they have and actually seeing if they could even go to a month-to-month -month 
a lot of landlords in at least commercial real estate aren't quite happy about those. They really like the long term. So if you are currently evaluating that as a potential, um, all I can say is good luck. <laughs> so again, short-term leases are not included or, requ or required here. When we have practical expedients, there are four that we have really looked at, or uh, five really, that we've looked at under this new standard. So we kind of wanted to make sure that those are brought up. Uh, it can really help to reduce the cost. It can help reduce your time as you implement this new standard uh, and making it a little bit less complex, I would say. So first ones, uh, there's a package that you have to kind of elect together. So the first three items that you see here all have to be done at the exact same time. Um, this really helps to relieve the burden again of having to determine whether those leases are going to be included or not. Um, so again, if you had leases that were identified as, let's say, a financing lease as of uh, before the implementation date, you did not have to go back and recategorize those or reclassify them um, if they happen to not fall under the financing lease standard or requirement under the new standard. So, you know, that is, is a good thing because you're not going to have to go back and recalculate everything necessarily. Um, so looking at that, again, is a really good thing to help relieve your burden of it. Oops, I'm sorry. I think I skipped a few pages. All right. Moving on to uh, looking at a couple of other practical expedients. I think the last one, the use of the risk-free rate, that is one that just came out. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we get into uh, the discounts and what you can use, but there is a practical expedient that non-public entities can use a risk-free rate if you don't have a rate that is not explicitly defined within your uh, lease agreement. So we can kind of talk through that in just a little bit more detail here in a couple of minutes. So let's talk about what a lease actually is because the new standard does define it. So it does have to be a contract or a part of a contract that conveys the right to control the use of either the property, the plan or the equipment, whatever that identified asset is for a period of time in exchange for consideration, right? So whether that's time or money. Uh, control to your customer, to that lessee, means that they have the right to obtain substantially all the economic benefits from the use of that space or that asset, and you can direct the use of that asset. So again, a lot of our clients are looking at these in terms of your space that you're um, obviously taking a look at the space. You also have financing leases that will fall under, let's say, copiers, because you have the economic benefits. You can direct the use of it and the control of it. Um, so really looking at the definition of a lease first and foremost. If you've already had a lease that's been defined as a lease, more often than not, it's gonna to continue to be a lease under this new standard. So then moving into the classifications, there is a little bit of a shift here uh, from what we saw under the old standard versus the new standard uh, between finance and operating leases. So first you look to see if there are criteria for which you have a finance lease. And so we have a I'll call it a checklist almost for you here of what is considered to be a finance lease. Um, it's basically what we've called a capital lease in the past, right? So one, you have to transfer ownership by the end of the lease term. There's either a purchase option, which a lot of, let's say, capital leases back in the day did for a dollar value at the end of the lease term, you can purchase this. You also have to be reasonably certain to exercise that right. The lease term is a major part of the remaining economic life of the asset. So again, we look at typically a 75% as being a major part. 
the present value of the sum of the lease payments and any guaranteed residual value by the lessee equals or exceeds substantially all of the fair value of the underlying asset. Again, we use the 75% rule typically for that when we're evaluating it. The asset has no alternative use to the actual lessor at the end of the lease term. And then a finance lease for sales types lease of lessors, we, we don't look and encounter that, I would say, too, too often, um, but it is important to kind of put here. So once you've kind of worked through all those items, if it doesn't fall within any of these buckets, none of the above criteria applies, then you have an operating lease. And so the operating lease is for the lessee or you have a direct financing lease under the lessors. So then looking at those lease classifications, if we continue on the presentation for your statement of financial position or your balance sheet, uh, under a finance lease and under operating lease, you're gonna have the same types, but they are required to be separated and segregated, which we'll get into in, a little, in just a couple of minutes. But you will have a right of use asset, which is going to be initially measured at its present value using that discount factor or rate. Uh, which will be amortized over the course of the period. And then you will have a corresponding lease liability where, again, as you make payments, that will be reduced for its future value. On the income statement or the statement activities sides of things, under the financing lease, you're going to have interest expense because, again, it's financed. It's a loan in types, in terms. Uh, and then an amortization expense for that right of use asset. With the cash flow, again, same kind of concept that you've had previously with the, uh, the capital leases, you'll have those principal payments that will be put against the actual lease liability and then any interest of payment within those operating activities at the time. For the operating lease, just a couple of differences here on the income statement, you're just gonna have one single lease cost or occupancy cost, rent expense, however uh, you want to term it. And then on the cash flow, you'll have all the cash payments uh, that will be up and included in the operating activities section under that income statement side. So the operating leases, when we talk through um, the right of use asset, the lease liability, and how those components are actually calculated, the transition adjustment um, is one area that I think a lot of our clients have mostly been struggling on. So when we think through the actual lease liability in and of itself, it's going to be all of the remaining minimum uh, rent payments for the future of that lease. So again, you're not going back to the actual initial date of the lease commencement. You are only looking at it as of the transition date. So again, just making it in easy terms, my calendar year ends, you are going to be looking at your January 2022 payments moving forward. So if you had a lease that started in 2020, you're not going to go back to 21. You're not going to go back to 2020. You will do it as of your effective date of January 1, 2022. So that's kind of where that lease liability will start. And then you're going to discount it um, using, again, that discount rate based on that commencement date. The right of use asset is a little bit trickier. Um, so when it comes to how the right of use asset is measured, while we have these items on the slide here for you that kind of include all of the component components um, for how to do the calculation, here's the easy way that I kind of think through things. Again, using the calendar year end as an example, uh, if you have 
as of 12-31-2021, items on your balance sheet, deferred rent, leasehold improvements, accumulated amortization of leasehold improvements. Uh, and you basically have to write off a lot of those items. Now, leasehold improvements is a sticking point with a lot of my clients. And so I wanna make this pretty clear that leasehold improvements must be the accounting asset of the lessee in order to maintain on the actual statement of financial position or your balance sheet. Again, I'll say that one more time, it has to be your accounting asset. So when I look and I see uh, leasehold improvements, a lot of times those have been tenant improvement allowances under the landlord's avail uh, availability, right? So you might have a leasehold improvement incentive also on your books at the end of the year. Um, they are, let's say within your lease agreement, you are given $1 million to be able to build out your space. We're constructing walls to be able to put in offices. We're putting in cabling and wiring to be able to um, put in all of our technology. And so when you think through, is that truly as a lessee, my accounting asset, I can't take a wall with me when I leave the space. I'm not gonna pull out the cables and take it with me. Now there may be some items in there um, that they allow you to take. For instance, some landlords will say that you have, let's say of that million, you have $25,000 that you're allowed to use for furniture, fixtures, equipment that you can then take with you when you leave the space. So there are a couple of questions that I like to send my clients uh, when I've been working with them on this new standard. What happens to the improvements when the lease ends? Do you get to keep them or does the landlord get to keep them in terms of the benefits? Are the improvements specialized to the lessee's needs? Uh, an example here is just if you happen to build out a lab space or you have a retail space that is specifically designed to benefit the lessee, they may be the lessee's asset at that point in time then. Who supervises and bears the cost of the build out? Where the lessee is actively involved uh, in the build out and you may be able to, or you are required to pay for, let's say any overages there, then you may also potentially be the lessee. This is very subjective as well. And then again, who legally owns the improvement? So the legal owner who has title, who has right to it, more often than not is the landlord. Um, so those are kind of some of the questions to think through uh, with the actual leasehold improvements. So again, going back to the example, you have the leasehold improvements, you have accumulated amortization, you have deferred rent, you're gonna zero out. And we've already determined the leasehold improvements are the landlord's assets in this case. I'm sorry, I should make that clear. They are not the lessees, they are not your assets. You're gonna basically zero all those balances out as of the um, end of the year or what those balances were at the end of the year. And then you're gonna have a remaining number that let's say if you're looking at T accounts is gonna to have to balance it out somewhere, right? We'll call that the right of use asset plug for greater terms, right? So that number is going to actually go and reduce more often than not your right of use asset as of the beginning of the implementation date. So when you think through all of those items, your right of use asset is going to be equal to your lease liability, less whatever that plug is to kind of get through your balance sheet as of the beginning of that year for what it should be. So we will be working with a lot of clients on that and kind of talking through different things. So when we're looking at the discount rate that's going to apply, Really, uh, first and foremost, you have to look to that lease agreement and you have to see if there's an implicit rate. If there's an implicit rate, the guidance says that you must use that. So sometimes um, 
We've seen landlords say that you have an implicit rate that is at two and a half percent. That's kind of what they're looking at for the financing of it all. Um, and that will have to be the rate that you use for your present value discount. It doesn't happen that often. I think I've seen it literally one time um, with all of the new lease standard adoptions that I've been working through. Um, but that is the, the first and foremost, the one that you would have. If there is not an implicit rate, then you have a couple of different options because there is a new practical expedient, as I already mentioned, that came out last November. One, you can use your incremental borrowing rate if the implicit rate cannot be readily determined. Um, so again, if you have a line of credit out there, if you have a loan that's already out there with a the bank, you kind of know what your incremental borrowing rate is. Or if you were to go to market to get a loan, how much would they charge you for interest. So that is the next thing. Now, the other uh, exception here is if you are a non-public entity, again, hopefully that's all of you that are on this presentation today, uh, you are allowed to use a risk-free discount rate. Now, this new guidance um, came out back in November that basically said that you don't have to apply it to all different classes of the assets. So if you have um, financing and operating leases, you don't necessarily have to apply that risk-free rate simply because back in November, the risk-free rate was 0.3%, 0.5%. It was very, very low. So it didn't quite mirror what the incremental borrowing rate would be if you went to market to get a loan. Um, but we're in a place now where we're, we are seeing that risk-free rate actually be more comparable um, to the borrowing rate. I think we're sitting around 4% right now, close to it. So it's pretty, pretty comparable to what's out there in terms of the market, I would say. So those are your options there that you would be able to use. So again, incremental borrowing rate is what you would have to pay in order to um, borrow an amount equal to what you're getting for that lease. So a couple of other just uh, considerations that you might wanna look through. Um, again, if you had to pay a security deposit that's going to be used towards uh, future rent, uh, not necessarily something you're gonna get back at the end of the actual lease term. Uh, if you have initial direct costs, if there's modifications that are um, not accounted for as a separate contract, making sure that all of those are considerations. But again, we, we don't tend to see these too, too often. Um, it's just something worth mention, mentioning. So presentation and disclosure, again, I'm just going to go through these fairly quickly simply because I feel like I've explained a lot um, already with that again. But these balance sheets, statement of financial position, um, again, they should be right of use asset, a lease liability. On the lease liability side, you're going to have a current and a non-current portion related to it if you are showing a classified balance sheet. You don't have to necessarily um, present it on the face of the statement and disclose it. You just have to do either or. Uh, and then also making sure that you are segregating both your financing and your operating lease right of use assets. Um, as well as your liabilities. So you cannot just lump them all together. So just an example here um, that we have, again, most of the time the finance leases will be within your PP and E sections. Um, the other uh, operating lease presentation may change ever so slightly. Some people have been putting them in their PP and E. Some people have been putting it as an other asset. Uh, that's kind of up to you in terms of the classification. But again, showing those current portions and long-term portions of those liabilities. So if you are a non-public entity and you aren't necessarily nonprofit, you may have um, 
operations. So you do want to show them uh, above the line. They are considered to be a part of your operation. So that is important to merit in part in, in terms of the uh, how the presentation is going to look. And then your statement of cash flows, again, already kind of talked through this in that one slide that kind of breaks it out for you. And so it won't touch too much on that. Now your disclosures. Uh, you want to make sure that your financial statement users are able to really assess how much, when, so the timing, and if there's any uncertainty that could be arising from any potential cash flows from these leases. So general, general information about your lease is required to be disclosed. This is generally just going to be a continuation of what you currently have uh, within your footnote disclosure for your lease commitments, the basis and the terms and the conditions on which those lease payments are determined. So again, what is your base rent? If there is an escalation clause, how much that escalation causes, how long it is, the existence and the terms and the conditions of the options to extend or terminate. Now, again, this is really, really important simply because when we're looking at the actual initial valuation of your lease liability of your right of use asset, if you have an option to either renew or terminate early and you are more than likely to exercise those rights, that has to be included as a part of the calculation. So if in your lease, you are looking at a potential to renew your lease for another five years and management's already said, yeah, we love this space, more than likely we're gonna continue to renew it for that next five years, you're gonna wanna include that five-year renewal period within your calculation. So that's why this is important to disclose. Uh, any restrictions or covenants that you might have within those leases, Anything that's not yet commenced, meaning that if you have already contracted for a lease, uh, but you haven't necessarily started um, the actual lease commencement date or period, you would still want to disclose that, um, much like you would under the 840 prior standard, and then any assumptions that are used in applying the actual uh, required um, topic here, 842. Practical expedience, we'll also want to make sure that we disclose those as well. So then looking at um, just the continuation of the disclosures, again, these are some other items here. If you have sublease income, you're going to want to include those. These are really more so often for, um, you know, those organizations that are including people within their spaces. We do have some subleases out there. It doesn't happen too, too often, I would say, anymore, um, but we are seeing it from time to time. Again, that accounting hasn't changed. So you are still gonna to continue to recognize your sublease income as you would under the prior topic. And then again, a maturity analysis for what you have to pay in the future. The only difference here from what you would see under the old standard is under the old standard, you would have your five years of um, future minimum payments and anything thereafter. Now you're gonna show those and you're gonna discount it back to get it back to what your lease liability is on your balance sheet or statement of financial position. So a couple of tips here as we talk through just the implementation. Number one, make sure you have people on your team that are um, looking into this standard who are um, able to actually have the time to dig into the standard and able to apply it. We, we sit here and say, include your auditors, include them early, include them often, make sure that they're uh, looking at and reviewing your calculations so that there are no surprises when it comes to the audit timeline. Make sure you're assessing these and, and looking at them in totality. Again, just due to time, I'm not gonna touch too, too much on these, but we do have them included for you in the presentation materials so that you can have them post this webinar. So again, looking at the last piece here, post-implementation, one of the things that's really, really important, I would say, is to make sure you have updated accounting policies. 
that are applicable under topic 842 for leases. Make sure that you have new accounts already included for um, the reporting purposes, especially for um, auditors as we come in. We want to make sure those finance and operating leases are broken out and any internal controls that you have in terms of reconciliations, in terms of evaluation of new leases that might be coming down the pipeline, make sure that you are um, having your standard operating procedures updated for those. Last but not least, we also wanted to make mention on December 1st, we have an upcoming deeper dive uh, related to the new lease standard with two other colleagues, um, Lindsay Dean and Steve Lyons. We wanna make sure that you're aware of that. One last ditch effort, I would say before that, um, actual ASU comes into play for next year's audit period. So make sure you register if you want to learn a little bit more. And then we also have a newly created resource center on our website. So please check it out. We will have a checklist there for you um, that will be very helpful as you work through this. So this time I'm going to hand it over to my colleague, Alejandra, to talk about contributed non-financial assets. Thank you so much, Trisha, um, for that overview on the leases. Um, there's definitely a lot of information, so if you all have questions, please make sure um, you drop it into the chat box so that we can address it at the end of the webinar. Um, so as Tricia mentioned, I will be reviewing um, the presentation and disclosures by not-for-profit entities for contributing non-financial assets. So this is a new accounting standards update that was issued, um, and we will be going in depth um, as it relates to this new update. On the next slide, before we start getting into the details of the update, um, I'm gonna pass it off to Sarah to go over our second polling question. Hi everyone, so here's our second polling question. Does your organization receive contributed non-financial assets? A, yes, B, no, C, unsure. Please take a moment now to answer. While participants are submitting their answers, I will provide the second CPE word. The second CPE word is payment. If you wanna receive CPE credit, please jot these words down because you will need them for the survey following the webinar. Again, the second CPE word is payment, P-A-Y-M-E-N-T. All right, um, so it looks like the results of the poll, we have a mixture. We have um, about 36% that do receive uh, contributed non-financial assets. And then we've got about 50% um, that said no and, and a few that said they were unsure. So um, let's go ahead and take a deeper dive as it relates to the update on the next slide. All right, um, so, uh, this was issued back in September 2020, um, and it's called ASU 2020-07 is the update. Um, so really the reason behind this new update is to increase transparency of how not-for-profits recognize contributed non-financial assets by bo uh, both improving both the presentation and the disclosure of those contributed non-financial assets. You'll see that contributed non-financial assets are often referred to as in-kind donations. Uh, you'll also see, I've seen clients call it, you know, contributed services, contributed materials. Um, so the terminology as it relates to the contributed non-financial assets um, doesn't necessarily change. You can still use those interchangeably under the new um, update. 
uh, on the next slide. Uh, so when does this become effective? The ASU should be applied retrospectively and it becomes effective for annual periods beginning after June 15, 2021. So if you are a June 30th year end, you will be uh, required to adopt this for your June 30th, 2022 audit um, and for any other fiscal years beyond that. Um, it's also effective for any interim periods within annual periods beginning after June 15, 2022. So what are the main changes in this accounting standards update? So the first big change um, is that on the face of the statement of activities is that now you're going to be required to separate on a separate um, separate the contributed non-financial assets on its own line. Previously, I've seen, you know, some clients have always segregated those two, um, like contributions from the contributed non-financial assets. I have some clients where they've kind of lumped it all into one line on the statement of activities and just calls it contributions. And then in the back of the financial statements within the footnotes, we'll disclose um, the in-kind or the contributed non-financial assets and, and what that comprised was, was comprised of. Uh, and then in addition, um, for the disclosures and the footnotes, the detail of the contrib contributed non-financial assets, they want you to disclose that by type. So if you have donated space, um, donated materials, maybe you have some pro bono legal services that you get from, um, from different uh, law firms. So you'll want to break that out by the type and the amount in, in, within the footnote. And for each type or category that you disclose, they also want you to provide qualitative details of whether um, those contributed non-financial assets were monetized or used during the period. Now, if they were used during the period, um, you'll also want to disclose uh, the description of the programs that they benefited. So again, if you received donated space and it benefited, you know, fun, you know, it could benefit different programs, maybe a little bit of GNA, maybe um, program services, maybe fundraising. So it could be a hodgepodge of the different programs or supporting services. Um, we'll also want to disclose the, the entity's policy, if it has one, of whether um, they monetize or utilize those contributed non-financial assets and under which circumstances they would monetize versus utilize those. Um, you'll also want to disclose what valuation methods and inputs were used to arrive at the fair value. Um, so typically with the fair value, what, what we typically see our clients is that they'll get, um, for example, attorney fees, um, pro bono legal services. We usually get uh, estimates from the actual attorneys who perform the in-kind services and what that value is. Um, so that's one of the, the ways. And they use, obviously, their billable rates that they would charge a normal client um, times the number of hours that they have provided work or have done work on your behalf. Also, it talks about concepts of principal market and or the most advantageous market. Um, what this talks about is that it's requiring you to disclose the principal market that's used to arrive at a fair value measure if it is a market in which the recipient not-for-profit is prohibited by a donor-imposed restriction from selling or using the contributed non-financial asset. 
And then lastly, um, you'll want to disclose any donor-imposed restrictions on those contributed non-financial assets. So what are some examples of the contributed non-financial assets? I've already gone through a couple, but some things to keep note of is uh, traditional fixed assets such as land, buildings, equipment, the use of utilities, the use of space, um, the use of fixed assets, uh, materials and supplies, intangible assets and services. Most of the time for the services, again, I see a lot of the legal services and consulting services um, as part of the contributed non-financial assets. So here are some FASB examples of presentation. So you'll see here um, an example of a statement of activities. So you'll see that first line shows the contributions of cash and other financial assets. And then that second line underneath, um, you'll see that says contri contributions of non-financial assets. And as I mentioned before, uh, the wording or the terminology that you use, um, if you've used in-kind contributions in the past or contributed services and materials, et cetera, you can still um, continue on with the same terminology. You're not you know, 100% required to say contributions of non-financial assets. If you please, um, if you so please. The next one is um, some examples of presentation on the disclosure. So here you'll, you'll see um, an example disclosure that breaks out those contributed non-financial assets by type. So you'll see here, uh, this particular example has, you know, donated food, vehicles, medical supplies, and some professional services. And below that, you'll see some qualitative information. So you can see here that the contributed food and medical supplies were utilized in their community programs. And the donors had put a restriction on the medical supplies to dictate that they can be used only for elderly individuals. So here they've kind of broken it out by type and then have given you qualitative information on the programs that it benefited as well as any restrictions. Here's another example. So uh, here you can actually see versus the qualitative, they've kind of broken it out into a table. So you'll see on the left-hand side, the program or the supporting service that each um, category of the contributed non-financial assets were used um, or benefited which program. So you'll see here, donated space benefited a variety of programs or supporting services. Um, same thing with the services and the donated goods. We'll get you to that total. Um, here's another one, and I kind of like this one as well, because this one goes into a little bit more detail and kind of highlights all the requirements within this new um, accounting standards update. So here you can see each type of contributed non-financial asset and the amount of revenue that was recognized as it relates to each category. That second column, you'll see the utilization in the programs or different activities for each of those contributed non-financial assets, as well as discloses whether or not there were any donor-imposed restrictions. And then the last part that I do like as well is that it talks about the valuation techniques and inputs. For example, the services, um, you can see that the contributed services from attorneys were valued at the estimated fair value based on current rates for similar legal services. And then as far as the medical supplies and the food, it looks like the basis of the estimates 
were wholesale values that would be received for selling similar products in the United States. So that's that's really what the accounting standards update is doing is just providing more tra transparency over the valuation, how you're valuing those in-kind donations, as well as disclosing restrictions and what programs or supporting services um, that those in-kind donations are benefiting. And Alejandra, I, I think that this is probably the area that a lot of our clients necessarily, um, from an accounting perspective, may not have all of the relative information and may have to work with development on or their program people. Because a lot of times what I experience is that they're getting that information directly over what the value was, but they don't necessarily know how it was valued, right? So when I think through mm -hmm. food inventory, um, you know, thinking through that it's valued at uh, the America food valuation uh, per pound, mm -hmm. um, you know, having that qualitative disclosure, that information in, in there is, again, as you already mentioned, what is really being beefed up here. Mm -hmm. So there's no change in the accounting treatment of how it's actually accounted for, it's just greater transparency over that disclosure. But I think that's where, when we talk about implementation, where we talk about changes, it's really going to be a cross-departmental kind of a conversation. Accounting is going to have to talk with their program people, their development people to really understand how that valuation is getting performed. Yeah, I 100% agree. Um, it's definitely going to have to be a team effort to really uh, go back and see you know, really how they're they're obtaining that those fair value estimates and how they're deriving those. And so it might be a little bit more um, of a heavy lift for some of those in finance to, to be able to get that information so that we could disclose it properly within the, the footnote disclosures. Um, otherwise, the value, the the way that has been valued in the past is probably going to be consistent and reasonable. Um, it's just the fact of, you know, again, beefing that up and, and being more transparent. Okay, so polling question number three, have you maintained the proper documentation for the necessary disclosures under ASU 2020-07 as it relates to contributed non-financial assets? Um, so again, uh, we're on top of it. I think so. We could use some improvement here or we don't receive contributed non-financial assets. And while you all are doing that, I'll hand it back to Sarah. To give Hi guys, so please take a moment now to answer. While you guys are answering, um, I will provide you with a third CPE word. The third CPE word is supply. If you wanna receive CPE credit, please jot these words down because you will need them for your following survey. Again, the word is supply, S-U-P-P-L-Y. Awesome. So it looks like the results have come back. Um, I'm seeing, you know, some various kind of all over the place. We see some that are on top of it, some that think they are on top of it, um, some that think they could use some improvement, as well as um, a few of you look like you do not receive any in-kind donations. Um, so again, if you have any questions on how to treat something or need help with the disclosures and things like that and the valuation techniques, please let us know. We can definitely help and guide you in that way. All right, now we're going to head into intangibles, goodwill, and other. Um, so ASU 2021-03 was issued or topic 350. 
um, was issued as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so prior to this accounting standards update being issued, organizations were continually monitoring goodwill for impairment throughout the year by evaluating goodwill impairment triggering events as they occur. Um, but because all of the uncertainty that happened around the COVID-19 pandemic, um, organizations were having a lot of challenges and problems with potentially triggering events that were happening in 2020 and 2021. So again, it was a lot of up and down. And so the fluctuation and the uncertainty from quarter to quarter um, just made that evaluation process uh, even more of a burden for organizations. Um, there was a heavy impact on lessees. Oh, that, that should not be there. Um, but yes, so, so under this new ASU, because of the issues with the pandemic and everything, um, they are making it easier on the not-for-profit or not non-public entities by no longer having them or feeling the need to evaluate for goodwill impairment on an ongoing basis. So meaning... Now you're only looking at the facts and circumstances as of the end of your reporting period to determine if impairment has actually occurred versus throughout the year, which was obviously very cumbersome for these organizations. No additional disclosures are required and the new update is effective on a prospective basis for fiscal years beginning after December 15, 2019. So you'll see that um, for 2020 and beyond. Um, and as I noted before, the accounting standard update does include both non-for-profit entities that are conduit bond, bond obligers, obligers or that otherwise meet the definition of a public entity. So again, um, you'll see some improvement, I guess, uh, in the fact that you are only required to now um, look at those triggering events as of the end of the reporting period and determining whether that impairment has actually occurred. Yeah, and I, I know this probably doesn't impact a lot of the people that we have on today's presentation, um, but when we think through some of the uh, ASUs that have come down, for instance, leases, uh, your right of use assets actually have to be evaluated for potential impairment. Um, so while we sit there and we might say that we may not have goodwill and we don't have necessarily other intangibles, mm -hmm. um, there are some impairment processes that likely many of you will be affected and impacted by that you have to look at. Um, so we do want to make sure that that is made clear. Um, so again, you're just looking at it as of the end of the reporting period. Um, you know, there's been a lot of things that have been ongoing in terms of the COVID pandemic. I think FASB has done a wonderful job of trying to keep abreast of things, of really listening to organizations out there, uh, making sure that they are um, kind of considering all of the different options and making sure that they are keeping a lot of the burden off of some of the organizations that were impacted, like not-for-profits, because, man, I tell you, when I talk to some of my clients about what happened during COVID and the uptick of their programs and what they had to do and day by day by day, everything changing, I mean, it, it hit... It hit us in terms of, I know that our uh, executive committee was meeting every other day, it seemed, to kind of figure out what we were doing and what was happening. You know, making things less hard and less complex for, for entities 
you know, FASB did do a nice job of that. So um, I do want to give kudos to them, even though sometimes they, they, I think they try to make our life a little more difficult, but um, they do actually listen. So um, I do want to make that point out, but. Yeah, it's great that they provided relief because I mean, the burden and the time consuming aspect of just evaluating that continuously is huge. Okay, so I think we have time for a few questions. Um, some that have come in. Here's the first one. Um, you mentioned that leases can be cumbersome and many organizations are struggling with understanding all the necessary components. Mm -hmm. What are you seeing most organizations are doing with the new standard? Are they consulting with other auditors or other parties for the calculation? Or are they attempting to do it themselves? That's a, a great question. I think we've had um, likely a lot in both buckets in terms of whether they've come to us or they've attempted to do the calculation themselves. Um, we've had a lot of consulting, at least in terms of questions, uh, even if they have attempted to do themselves. I know I've been on a number of calls with different clients, just especially those that are international and have international leases uh, globally, just in terms of how to do the calculations, how to pull it, dealing with foreign currency translations, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, there's lots of things that are on a lot of people's minds when it comes to this, but uh, we actually do provide a service whereby we can consult and maintain independence um, and be able to uh, help with the calculation. We've, at, we've actually partnered with a vendor for this calculation, which if you join December 1st, uh, webinar, you actually will see a mini demo of. It's pretty cool. Uh, and we can actually help to provide a, a lot of information. And I think, again, we're, we're relieving some of the burden because we're allowing our clients to continue to do what they are really needing to do, which is the programmatic work. And we're doing the nerdy technical accounting stuff, which is what we want to do. <laughs> so it works out really, really well. Yeah, I've, as Trisha said, I've seen both. I think, you know, a lot of clients are like, okay, well, I'm going to, uh, you know, attempt to do the calculation. And I think as they start, you know, going into it, uh, you know, different, once they start getting heavily into the process, they're kind of, they get overwhelmed. And then that's when we kind of come in and kind of help them guide them through that calculation. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, and looks like we had one live question come in from Heather. Um, so Heather did ask if the definition for financing operating lease change in 842 and to give an example of a financing lease. Um, so there was a slide that kind of went through what the criteria was for uh, an actual financing lease. But in terms of really what we're looking at, what we typically see, um, you know, an example of that would still continue to be what your old capital leases were, your copiers, uh, if you were... Um, financing a, a vehicle, for instance, those would be the types of things that we would be looking at or leasing a vehicle. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say financing, leasing a vehicle. Um, those would be what you would be looking at in terms of financing leases. Your spaces, uh, you know, what you're renting out in terms of commercial rental real estate typically fall under that operating lease, mainly because you don't have the, the right to actually go out and buy it unless there's a purchase or a sale back agreement. So you may have to evaluate that criteria. Um, but those are pretty much going to maintain in the same bucket, but there are instances where it may flop based under the new standard, but minimally. Okay, I think we have time for one more quick question. Um, here's, here's one. What process changes do you foresee with the newly required disclosure information for gifts in kind? 
Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier um, in the discussion and as well with Trisha, you know, um, the accounting wise piece of it isn't going to change the disclosure piece. Yes, it's going to be, um, you know, a lot of more information that we're required disclose to disclose. I think for most of our clients, they've done a really good job already of segregating the different in-kind contributions that they're receiving. Um, the biggest hurdle will be, as we mentioned before, the valuation um, and inputs of how you derived that fair value. Um, so again, as, as we said before, you know, going back to development um, and really trying to figure out how they um, came up with that fair value, hopefully you're getting something from the donor. Um, you know, if you're getting like a piece of equipment, for example, how much would they have sold that to, you know, a normal customer if they weren't donating it? You know, well, what is that market price? Um, same thing with the in-kind services. You know, if you're seeing a, cons uh, if a consultant's providing you some in-kind services, what is their billable rate normally? And how many hours did they spend on a particular project for you? Um, things like that. So getting that information is probably gonna be the more cumbersome piece. But once you have that, I think everything else will kind of come together. Um, and we can definitely include that within the disclosures and comply with that new standard. Right, and going back to that again, I think it's always about policies and internal controls mm -hmm. um, to make sure that your standard operating procedures, your SOPs are updated accordingly. If there is a required update, make sure that you are looking at it under the new standard. Um, and then if there is a change in either the frequency of the valuation, I think that's one other big thing because um, you may have to value things on a monthly basis or a quarterly basis. That would be also one thing that you would want to look at in your SOPs as well. With that, I would like to thank everyone for attending today's um, discussion. We encourage you to follow, up with, follow us on social media at GRF CPAs, as well as visit our website at www.grfcpa.com for all upcoming events and alerts. Thank you, Trisha and Alejandra for a great job. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the GRF on the Co podcast. Visit our website at grfcpa.com for more information about the services we provide, the industries we serve, or to request a quote.